Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back, GC. How have you been? Doing great, Zach. Happy to be back. How about you? I'm happy to be back, too. And, you know, the court is back at work and is busy now, and so are we. So are you ready to jump right into things today? Let's do it. Excellent. Well, on Monday, the Supreme Court declined to hear two election-related lawsuits out of Pennsylvania. Both of these cases asked the court to resolve essentially the same question, namely, can entities other than a state's legislature, such as an executive branch official or the courts, modify the rules governing federal elections since the Constitution explicitly vests that authority with state legislatures? If you'll recall, in both of these cases, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ordered state officials to accept and to count mail-in ballots up to three days after Election Day, even though the Pennsylvania state legislature had considered the issue and had explicitly declined to adopt that approach and instead required all mail-in ballots to be received by Election Day in order to be counted. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court based its decision on a vague clause of the state constitution requiring that elections, quote, shall be free and equal. Justices Thomas and Alito issued written dissents from the denial of certiorari, with Justice Gorsuch joining Justice Alito's dissent. Justice Thomas's dissent in particular took his colleagues to task, saying that the court's decision not to hear these cases was, quote, baffling because it leaves election law hidden beneath a shroud of doubt. He emphasized that the votes at issue in these cases didn't appear to be outcome determinative, but noted that the next time the court has to address these issues, that might not be the case. He emphasized that the issues presented by these cases are not moot just because the 2020 election is over, because they're capable of repetition and yet evading review. Justice Thomas said that, quote, one wonders what this court waits for. We failed to settle this dispute before the election and thus provide clear rules. Now we again fail to provide clear rules for future elections. You know, we certainly hope that Justice Thomas's words don't turn out to be prophetic, but he is right that this is likely not the last time the court will be asked to decide the very important issues surrounding who may modify election-related rules and procedures. It is strange, Zach, that they are turning it down now uh, when there is no longer an election for which they uh, could be accused of, of politically interfering. But there will be more, so we'll see what happens next time. Well, that's exactly right, GC. And, you know, that was another point that Justice Thomas made, that the courts aren't equipped to deal with these cases on the tight timelines they typically require and so this case did seem to be the uh, the perfect opportunity for the court to consider these very important issues in the, the normal course of business. But you're right. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Well, that brings us to oral arguments this week. We had uh, Lange versus California. This case is a Fourth Amendment case that will clarify when police can enter a home without a warrant. The question is whether a misdemeanor qualifies as an exigent circumstance that allows an officer to enter a home without a warrant. Usually warrantless entry is not permitted, but there are some exceptions, such as when the police are in hot pursuit of a suspect who has just committed a crime. 
So you think about a bank robber who runs into a home carrying cash and a weapon while being chased by the police. The hot pursuit doctrine lets the police continue the chase entering the home after him, even if they don't have a warrant. Now, in this case, a police officer followed Mr. Lange home after observing him committing a misdemeanor traffic violation, specifically a noise violation. Mr. Lange got home, entered the garage, and began to shut it when the officer stuck his foot in to stop it from closing. The officer then entered, smelled alcohol, and Mr. Lange's blood alcohol level was later shown to be three times the legal limit, so he was subsequently charged with both the noise violation and driving while intoxicated. He argued in defense that the police officer's entry into his garage was unlawful because a misdemeanor can't provide the exigency necessary to permit a warrantless entry. A California appellate court rejected this argument, holding that the hot pursuit doctrine applies to misdemeanors and felonies alike. At oral argument, the parties and a court-appointed amicus staked out several different positions. Mr. Lange argued that warrants are always required to enter a home unless there's a genuine emergency, which didn't exist here. California did not, in fact, agree with the California state court and instead took the position that the hot pursuit doctrine should always apply to felonies but should only apply to misdemeanors when it's determined that a true exigency exists under a totality of the circumstances approach. The court appointed amicus Amanda Rice defended the California Court of Appeals position, arguing that there should be at least a general presumption permitting warrantless entry for hot pursuits, regardless of the severity of the crime. A couple of justices came up with their own proposed rules. Justice Kagan said that the determining factor should be whether the crime is violent. Alito said that the hot pursuit doctrine applies to a situation only where the person knows he's being pursued and tries to evade. In the past, the court has taken an incredibly expansive view of what constitutes a hot pursuit, and Alito seemed to be pushing back on that. It's unclear whether this case, though, will be used as a vehicle to address that question. There's no clear consensus among the justices at oral argument. In fact, very few clear leanings. Overall, the justices were very concerned with how to craft a workable rule for law enforcement in the future. You know, GC, I thought there were two other interesting tidbits from the oral argument in this case as well. A lot of the discussion in this case focused on what types of warrantless entries into the home were allowed at common law when someone was pursuing a suspect. With the focus on what was allowed at common law, Justice Thomas asked one of the advocates whether the court should revisit the exclusionary rule, which, as you know, is the rule that evidence obtained in violation of someone's constitutional rights cannot be used against them at trial, uh, since the exclusionary rule is not required by the text of the Constitution and it was unknown at common law. Justice Thomas has expressed skepticism about the exclusionary rule in past opinions, and Professor Akhil Amar of Yale has also written extensively on this issue. The second interesting tidbit came from Justice Gorsuch, who made the same point that you and I have made before, GC, namely that there appears to be an over-criminalization problem because nearly all Americans have likely unknowingly committed a crime at some point in their lives. While Justice Gorsuch was concerned about this issue in the context of warrantless entries into someone's home, it's interesting to hear a justice focus on this issue, and you have to wonder how that observation will impact not only this case, but also future criminal law cases that the court hears. Yeah, this is not the first time that Justice Gorsuch has brought up over-criminalization, so he's got an eye on it, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. 
Another case the court heard this week was Florida versus Georgia. Uh, this is one of the rare cases that comes to the court under its original jurisdiction because it involves a dispute between two states. It's also the second time that the court has heard arguments in this case within the, just the past several years. Essentially, this case involves a dispute between Florida and Georgia over the amount of water each state is entitled to use from the Apalachicola River system. Florida contends that Georgia's expansive use of water from this system for irrigation purposes has negatively impacted Florida's oyster industry in the Apalachicola Bay, and Georgia says that forcing it to reduce its water consumption, as Florida wants, would greatly harm Georgia's economy with little to no benefit to Florida. This is an interesting case because it puts the justices in the somewhat unusual position of being not only the final authority on the law, but also on the facts since they are hearing it under their original jurisdiction. Zach, I just want to give you kudos for the casual way you're able to just pronounce Apalachicola. Well, you know, GC, it is in my uh, neck of the woods in the Florida panhandle, and they do have phenomenal oysters, so I highly recommend it. The court also heard oral arguments this week in a set of consolidated cases, Wilkinson v. Dye and Wilkinson v. Alcarez Enriquez. Uh, in both of these cases, the main issue revolves around what assumptions a court of appeals can make when reviewing asylum decisions from the Board of Immigration Appeals. In these cases, the Ninth Circuit held that unless an immigration judge or the BIA expressly states that an alien's testimony is not credible— the alien's testimony must be presumed credible and accepted as true for purposes of determining whether that alien is eligible for asylum. The government says that Congress expressly rejected this approach when it amended the Immigration and Nationality Act when it said that, with one limited exception that's not germane here, there is, quote, no presumption of credibility in evaluating an application for asylum. Well, that brings us up to our one opinion of this week. That's Brownback versus King. In an opinion written by Justice Thomas, the court unanimously held that a dismissal of a Federal Tort Claims Act case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction triggers the act's bar against related actions and thus forecloses a Bivens action based on the same set of facts. So the Federal Tort Claims Act allows a person to sue the federal government if a government agent commits a tort against that person while acting within the scope of his or her duties. But the act also includes what's called a judgment bar, which says that any judgment on such a claim prevents the plaintiff from bringing any other claim based on the same set of facts against the government agents themselves. In this case, the petitioner sued the government under the Federal Tort Claims Act after he got into a violent altercation with a couple of federal agents. In the same complaint, he also included a Bivens claim against the agents individually. The district court dismissed his Federal Tort Claims Act claim for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and his Bivens claim because the agents had qualified immunity. He appealed only his Bivens claim, and the issue on appeal was whether the dismissal of his Federal Tort Claims Act claim constituted a judgment and thus triggered the bar against his Bivens claim. The court held that it did because in the unique case of Federal Tort Claims Act claims, jurisdiction and merits are intertwined, so a dismissal for lack of jurisdiction is a decision on the merits and therefore a judgment. I'm interested to see how this case will play out as it's implemented across the country, uh, because I know when often when folks sue the federal government, they include both an FTCA claim and a Bivens claim. 
And so now it seems like they may be put in the position of having to choose which of those claims to advance. And uh, again, I think that'll certainly be an interesting uh, development to watch take place. Definitely. That brings us into our interview. And this week, we have another of our favorite government employees, a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. We are joined today by Judge Patrick Bumate of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Bumate has been on the bench for a little more than a year and took the seat previously occupied by Judge Carlos Bea, a former guest on the show. Judge Bumate, welcome. Thanks so much, Giancarlo. It's, it's a pleasure to be on with you. It's a pleasure to have you. So, Judge, what made you want to be a lawyer? So that's an interesting question. I, I did not grow up thinking I would be a lawyer. I grew up in a family of doctors. Both my mother and father are doctors, medical doctors. My grandfather was a doctor. I've got four or five uh, aunts and uncles that are also medical doctors. And so growing up, I thought, you know, that's the family line. I'll, I'll join that business. Uh, you know, and then things changed around, I would say, fifth or sixth grade. And what it was was that I joined the student government of my elementary school. And from there, I, I just kind of realized I liked working with people. I liked working on behalf of you know, a greater good on, on behalf of uh, my, my, my class at the time. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that spark started in, if, I think it was fifth grade, and then it continued all through high school um, and college. And it just led me in trajectory of being very interested in, in public service, public policy, and, and, and law school was the obvious choice uh, given that interest. How did your family react to you being the first uh, or, or one of few non-medical doctors? Yeah, so I'm definitely the black sheep of my family. Um, <laughs> my, my sister went on to become a medical doctor. She's a great uh, pediatric nephrologist in, in Long Island. Uh, and so I definitely was looked on as uh, suspicion in the sense of like, what are you doing and wh why you go this route? But I guess in my family, it was always, you could be whatever you want as long as it's a doctor or a lawyer. So uh, I, I, I was okay with fulfilling the much lesser career in my parents' mind, but they were okay with it eventually. So you are the first Filipino-American to serve as a federal judge, and your parents were immigrants. Did their experience affect the path that you chose for yourself? I think so, but I would say indirectly. And first of all, I have one slight correction. I was the first Filipino-American appellate judge, federal ah. appellate judge. There, there was one district court judge in New York that uh, is Filipino-American, and so she, she, she has the honors of being the first. So for me, it really, uh, I think my parents' story does, does impact me, and it really influenced who, who I am. Um, but it's because of the, the experiences that they've had and, and frankly, my, my extended family's experiences in, in the United States. So my, my grandfather actually first came to the United States in the 1920s, you know, took one of those steam liners across the Pacific, uh, came to California and, and picked uh, fruits and vegetables in the, in the fields, the farmlands of California. And what amazed me is that he, you know, saving up that money and, and supporting himself, he was able to uh, get a college degree, and then a PhD. Uh, uh, once he did that, he then returned to the Philippines and raised a family there. So my parents both came to the United States in the 1970s, you know, little more with than just their education, their faith and family. You know, they built a beautiful life for my sister and me. Uh, they, you know, I would say they are the epitome of the American dream coming from uh, a foreign country, 
and uh, just and they just built a, a beautiful, beautiful life. And so that impacts me in a way of you know, number one, I think it showed it, it led me to it, towards public service and giving back to this country. And it showed and it to me instilled a love of of this country and its institutions and and obviously its legal institutions, which is a huge part of it. So I think that's that's kind of how my parents' story has has impacted my trajectory. You started your career, uh, your legal career off uh, in the courts with uh, clerking for Judge Towns and Judge Timkovich. What were those experiences like? They were one of the best experiences uh, of my career. So I, I first uh, clerked for Judge Timkovich, who's now the, the chief judge on the 10th Circuit. And he has become a lifelong mentor. Uh, he is an absolute great judge. He's humble, unass- unassuming, collegial. He is a great writer. He really helped improve my writing. And he's got great analytical skills. And, uh, you know, to me, he's just the epitome of what a good judge should be. And I, I model myself after him as much as I can. I model my chambers uh, uh, as much as I can after his, how he ran chambers. His, the way his relationship with his clerks is how I model my relationship with my clerks. And uh, it's been a, a, and it's just a, been a wonderful lifelong mentorship and, and relationship uh, clerking for him. So uh, that has just been a, a tremendous asset to me throughout my, my life. And Judge Towns was another wonderful judge. Uh, she, from her, she was, a district, she was on the district court in the Eastern District of New York. From her, I, I learned how uh, you could be tough and manage your courtroom, but still be kind and, 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 uh, and, and, and a normal human being but without being run over by the parties in court. And the other thing I keep in mind from her is that before every break at, during a criminal trial, uh, she would tell, remind the jurors, you know, keep an open mind, keep an open mind. You haven't heard all the facts yet. You haven't heard all what the law is yet. Always keep an open mind. And, and that's something I, I keep as a mantra to myself as, as a judge when I uh, start a case. You, 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 I read the district court's opinions and I read the briefs and I'm keeping an open mind uh, all the way through. You know, usually by the time of oral argument, I do have some, some thoughts of where I want to go. But I, even then, I've had my mind changed uh, during oral, oral argument. So... That, that to me, I think, is a, is a great asset as a judge, always, you know, keeping an open mind and not prejudging things or, or you know, not, you know, thinking where you want to go before reading until the last, uh, until all the facts have come in and all the argument has come in. You mentioned that Judge Timkovich, that you've modeled uh, your relationship with your clerks and your chambers after him. What were some of his traditions? Yeah, there were a lot. Uh, the one that comes to, to most to mind is the annual ski reunion trip. So every year, um, usually about February, uh, sadly, I think this one might be the first one that's not going to happen in probably 15 years because of, of COVID. But we would all meet in Breckenridge, uh, uh, you know, current clerks, former clerks, sometimes future clerks. And, and we just all have a great ski reunion. Um, and what, what's even greater about it is uh, it was, is the Timbukwitsch uh, Gorsuch ski reunion. So then Judge Gorsuch uh, would have his and him and his clerks join. And so it, it's just such a wonderful experience of getting to meet a huge network of, of you know, be- uh, high powered 
smart lawyers uh, throughout the whole country, and and you know the camaraderie that you 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 that uh, comes up from skiing together and just chatting together, being on the ski lifts together, has been wonderful. And so one of the one of my proudest moments is uh, for last year. Uh, it became the the Timkovich uh, Gorsuch Bumate ski reunion. So I brought my clerks to to, to Breckenridge uh, last year, and I'm hoping to keep that tradition going as well. How about Judge Towns? Did she have any traditions with her clerks? Not real. She was a much more uh, quiet person. You know, she uh, she spent a lot of time with her family, and so for her, it was a lot more of a uh, you know a nine to five. We go into work and we work on the law and then you would go home. It'd be, it was less of that type of, uh, of, uh, you know, extra, uh, work environment. Besides those two judges, who have uh, your other mentors been? Yeah. So I had some great mentors right out of college. Frankly, one of the most important for me was Alberto Gonzalez. Uh, he was the white house counsel for president, uh, George W. Bush. And, one of my first jobs right out of college was working as his staff assistant. So uh, when he was White House counsel, I so I sat in the West Wing, which is obviously an amazing experience in itself. But I got to sit right outside his door and, and see everything that he was doing and 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 how he operates and all the important work that happens in government. And this was all during the, the run up to the Iraq is right after 9-11. And um, right before and it, right up to the run up of the Iraq war. And so it was an important, ex- extremely important time in American history. Um, it was just fascinating to see that from the legal perspective in, in the West Wing. And again, he has been a lifelong mentor to me uh, since then. He he's helped me get into law school. I think I, I, I credit him for helping me get into to Harvard Law School uh, I think he wrote a, a great recommendation, and he helped me with my clerkships and then returning to the Department of Justice after my clerkship. And that group of, of people in the White House Counsel's Office uh, all were, were mentors to me, and there were some great luminaries in there. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, he was someone that I looked to for advice on my career early on and um, as uh, and, you know figuring out career moves. He was a, a great mentor to me. Um, and then... Uh, Rachel Brand, who was the Associate Attorney General under President Trump, was also a great uh, uh, mentor and asset to me. And, and as I mentioned, with uh, during you know, the ski ski reunions with Judge Judge Gorsuch or now Judge Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, you know, he and I, uh, I I got to form a great relationship with him, and he he's been very helpful to me throughout my career. So I was really blessed with some great mentors early in in my career. No kidding. At the Justice Department, you returned there after your clerkship, and uh, you served in a number of different positions, everything from being a line prosecutor in San Diego to working as counselor to the attorney general. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through your career at the department and tell us what you did in each of those positions? Sure. So my first stint as a line prosecutor, I was at AUSA uh, in San Diego in the Southern District of California. And the first two years of that experience was, uh, you know, drinking water from a hose. <laughs> and, and that was, you just are, are inundated with cases. I think, you know, at any given time, you have 30, 40, 50 cases at one time. And so over those two years, I probably helped handle hundreds of cases. And it's, it's a staple of, because uh, we're right on the border, it's, a, it's a, a staple of cases relating to the border. So there's a uh, border bus of drugs coming in through the ports of entry, 
there's illegal reentry cases of uh, illegal aliens coming through either the ports or, or between the ports uh, on, on the land. And then uh, alien smuggling cases of uh, the, the coyotes that come in and bring aliens uh, illegally into the country. Uh, and it, it really was a, just a wonderful opportunity to, to learn my skills and hone my skills because of the high volume cases. You, there's just so much you have to learn and you, you can make mistakes and, 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 uh, and then you, and then you improve on the next one. So I think in one year I had six uh, federal trials, which uh, doesn't sound that much, but it, when you're, you're in the middle of that year, it's, it's a very, very busy, busy year uh, preparing and going through six uh, jury trials. No, that, uh, that does sound like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was, a, so I, I consider those years as my, uh, my, you know, the building block years of just being a, a good litigator, learning how to, how to practice the law. And then after two, two, maybe two and a half years, I was promoted to the narcotics unit, which um, uh, I, I loved working on. Uh, you know, most people join, become an AUSA because they, they want trial experience. They want to work, uh, stand up in court, which is all wonderful, great stuff. But frankly, to me, the best experience, the best part of being an, an AUSA was working with agents. So uh, in the narcotics section, I work, work very closely with uh, agents to help stop uh, the flow of drugs uh, from major cartels in Mexico, in South America. Uh, I focused on ton quantities of cocaine being shipped from South America, mostly Guatemala uh, and Colombia, through the East Pacific, where we literally catch boats uh, with a ton of, of cocaine. Um, and, and, and it was a wonderful opportunity. I got to work with Coast Guard, DEA, uh, some DOD in some capacities. So there, uh, that, that was just a wonderful uh, experience and, and thrilling, thrilling cases. And then from there, uh, in early 2017, I was asked if I wanted to do a detail uh, at the Department of Justice in the Deputy Attorney General's office. And to me, I, I jumped to that opportunity. From the start of my career, I knew that the Deputy Attorney General's office was was the nerve center of the Department of Justice. You know, I think of them as a COO of the Department of Justice. They handle and manage most of uh, the bulk of the important issues and cases and policies that uh, emanate from the department. So I jumped at the opportunity to be able to, 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 de- to work there at, on a detail. Um, and and, and I, I, I got to work on uh, some of the similar stuff that uh, I worked on as a prosecutor, mainly uh, the opioid epidemic, but taking it from a uh, you know a case specific, from trying to stop certain you know trend, uh, loads from coming into the country, to to thinking about policy nationwide and how to confront the opioid crisis. Uh, that was number one an honor because I felt like that is the the map the, the the staggering amount of deaths from opioids is, is was tragic, and being able to help. Uh, figure out how to stop that uh, was, was an honor for me. And then, um, so after about, I think, nine or ten months into that uh, stint working with the department, uh, the deputy attorney general's office, uh, someone asked me if I wanted to join Attorney General Fessenden's office as one of his counselors, uh, which I, I was shocked because uh, at, at that point I had actually started to plan to come back to the Southern District of California to, to, to work as continue working as a narcotics prosecutor when when I was asked to do this and 
And I jumped to that, that opportunity, of course, working for the attorney general was a huge honor. And, and to me, uh, my experience with, with, I think, Attorney General Sessions is a great patriot. You know, I think he's a true public servant. I think he truly cared about the Department of Justice. He cared about uh, you know, uh, public safety. He cared about law enforcement. And uh, I, I really, uh, really enjoy the opportunity uh, to work with Attorney General Sessions. It, it, it was a great, great, great time. And I really admire and respect him. And at some point, you ended up at the Office of Legal Policy. Is that? Am I right about that? Yeah. So that that one. So I've had multiple stints in the Office of Legal Policy. So I first started as an extern in uh, the Office of Legal Policy when I was in law school, and then um, between my clerkships at uh, between the Tenth Circuit and uh, the District Court, I again joined the Office of Legal Policy. Uh, for a short time as a, as a Schedule C in uh, maybe uh, just a little over a year. And then when the confirmation process happened uh, for Justice Gorsuch, uh, I actually detailed to the Office of Legal Policy to help with his nomination uh, r- right in February of 2017. And then when Justice Gorsuch was nominated, uh, I was still in the attorney general's office, but then I was, uh, I was, uh, the attorney general asked me to help assist the, the office of legal policy with, uh, justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. So I've had a, a, multiple st- stints with the office of legal policy. I see. What was your involvement like in the confirmation processes? Great. Yeah. So, uh, I, I would say it was, it was a marathon for, for both of them. Uh, the first one was Justice Gorsuch's, and it was so early in administration, there was so few people uh, working on it. I think at, at the Department of Justice, I, I think our team was, was a core of eight people, uh, which if you, if you could compare it to Justice uh, Kavanaugh's confirmation, I think there was well over 30 people at the Department of Justice working on that. So, um, and, and it was a marathon of you know, trying to get a grasp on all his writings and all his cases, you know, figure out all the parts of his career, just understanding all of that so that we prepared and ready uh, uh, to prepare him for the confirmation hearing and to just be prepared to respond to anything that comes up during confirmation hearing. Uh, I, you know, there were, there were definitely more than a few 20 hour days uh, during the Gorsuch confirmation process Um, with judge Kavanaugh. It, it was a little different because, uh, you know, they, we were the department was fully staffed up and there were many people involved. And I came in quite late in the process uh, to help with that confirmation. Uh, you know, I just came in just because I, uh, I had experience working with Justice Gorsuch. And, and, and frankly, I also had experiences for with Justice Roberts and Alita when I was at OLP as an extern. So someone told me I'm one of the few people that have worked on four Supreme Court justice confirmations. Huh. At some point during your career at Justice, you um, won the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service. How did that come about? Yeah, and, and that's, it ties in right with Justice Gorsuch because um, it was a huge, huge undertaking and, uh, and, and obviously an important priority uh, for the administration and, and for the department so that when we uh, was successfully uh, – helped confirm Justice Gorsuch, the department awarded the team with, with a Distinguished uh, Service Award, so, which, is, which, which is wonderful. 
So this is, you know, trying this next question might be trying to uh, do too much. But if you could pick maybe one or two really uh, favorite memories of your time, what would they be? Ah, well, to me, one of the cases that will always stay with me uh, that I prosecuted is, is an alien smuggling case uh, that I handled where a, uh, an alien smuggler had two aliens uh, in his car, the trunk of his car, and he, he was trying to smuggle them into the country through a port of, uh, through a port of entry. And unfortunately, the two aliens uh, died. They, they, they had hyperthermia and, and suffocated because of the heat in the trunk. And obviously, it, it's, it's a gruesome, awful, tragic case. Uh, but it, to me, it, it showed how important the work we were doing uh, as prosecutors uh, on the border is. And, um, and we, and obviously, I got to, uh, it was an important case for me because I got to work with the families of, of the victims, the wife of one of the victims. And what I also loved and appreciated that case is that we not only arrested and, and, and prosecuted and successfully convicted the, the, the driver that led to the death of the, the two aliens. Uh, but we didn't stop there. We used all the techniques of in investigation and we, we arrested his recruiter and convicted his recruiter and, and one other person involved in that alien smuggling ring. So, uh, you know, that just shows how you know, law enforcement mature work. You build it from a small a case, an important case, and you use all the tools available to build it and go up higher into the, that chain. So that that was one of example one of the examples that I, I, I yeah, as as a prosecutor that I really enjoyed. So you worked on four Supreme Court justice confirmations, and then suddenly you find yourself uh, <laughs> in in the same close same position. Uh, what was your confirmation process like? Uh, you know, um, I would say it was a roller coaster. Uh, it's you might know or you might not know. I actually was nominated to three different judicial seats. And I'm told that I'm one of the few people that actually made it onto the court after being nominated to three different seats. So uh, I was first nominated to the Ninth Circuit uh, to fill Judge Kaczynski's seat in uh, to late 2018. 2018. And then uh, for reasons that I'm not quite sure and I still don't fully understand, I was then nominated to a district court seat in the Southern District of California, which to me was a great honor. And you know, I, I, I never thought I would be a judge. If you asked me in law school, would, if I wanted to be a judge, I would have said, no, there's no way. There's no way I'd ever be confirmed or nominated. And even even 10 years ago, I would have gave you the same answer. But but as a, as a prosecutor, after being a prosecutor for a, for a while, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could I could try and become a district court judge one day in, in, here in San Diego. And, and that that would be uh, a, a tremendous uh uh, opportunity if that could happen, but I didn't really do anything to, to, to further that. It was just a nugget in the back of my head. Uh, anyway, so when I got nominated to the district court, I thought, well, that that's that's the seat that I always dreamed about. Uh, I never dreamed about the Ninth Circuit. I just always thought that that was out of my league. And uh, but uh, you know, th those are for the brilliant people, and I'm just a federal prosecutor. And uh, and uh, but so then I. During the summer uh, of 2019, uh, Judge Bea uh, uh, became got, got, became uh, took senior status, and I was nominated to his seat. So, and 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 I was confirmed to that seat. So it was, I would say, it was, it was a stressful, challenging time. 
But, you know, I was thankful that my process uh, wasn't as bad as some of my colleagues. I, I know you had uh, Judge Van Dyke here on this podcast uh, previously, and his process was 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 awful. And, uh, you know, the, the, the personal destruction, it just was, uh, it upset me. And I was just thankful that uh, I flew under the radar uh, mostly, for the most part. So you've been on the bench now for about a year. How has that experience been? Oh, it's 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 as amazing as you can think about it. And, you know, if you as if you're like me or as most lawyers, you you spend a lifetime thinking about the law, like what is the meaning of the Constitution and how would you interpret this statute and things of that nature. But now, like it's 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 humbling and amazing that people actually listen <laughs> to what I have to say about those things and. I love that opportunity, and it's a huge honor to be able to, to expand, expound on the law and give my thoughts on the law. Uh, and, of course, uh, I, I also feel the weight of, that, of those decisions. Now, now some of my thoughts and, and my views on the law are, actually have consequences and are, are becoming the law. So um, uh, I, it's, it's, it's a tremendous, tremendous uh, opportunity, and uh, you know, I'm thankful for it every day. So most of your tenure has been during the pandemic. Have you been able to form traditions with your own clerks? Obviously, you mentioned the ski trip. Yes. Yeah, we started the ski trip. That, that was one thing, and we hoping, we're definitely hoping to keep that. But the, the one that's uh, been caused by the pandemic is that we actually play uh, golf. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Frisbee golf? No. Uh, <laughs> it's, well, frisbee it's, golf, sure. Yeah, frisbee golf. We call it golf, but fris, frisbee golf, it's, it's the perfect pandemic uh, activity because it's outdoors and you could stay socially distanced and so uh, where you, you take little frisbees and you try to get these in, in target it's, it's essentially like a game of golf but with frisbees so you don't need uh, massive training or equipment and so we we, we play that uh, usually after every uh, week of oral argument and it's, it's, it's a great it's a great uh, good time it's a lot of fun do you keep any mementos of your career in chambers you know, uh, frankly, I've my chambers have been in construction almost from the start, uh, and so and 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 in fact, it's next week that our uh, my chambers is supposed to be complete. So I've been in a construction zone. I'm sitting in chambers now, and there's boxes and and tools lying all over the place. But I, I'm told next week will will be done, and so I I'm going to start focusing on those mementos. The one thing I know for sure that I'm going to have up prominently somewhere is that um, Judge Timkovich gave me a plaque that's made from the same marble as the Byron White Courthouse in, in Denver. Huh. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's a beautiful marble plaque uh, and that commemorates that time. And so I'm going to have that prominently because I always, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the way I run my chambers and the way I view my job as a judge is so influenced by Judge Timkovich that uh, I, I had that memento. And it also reminds me of Byron White, who's also a, a – great justice uh, of the court. Um, and so, um, you know, I definitely w looking forward to having that prominently displayed somewhere. Speaking of favorite justices, our one final question for you, Judge. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Ah, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I think I have to say it, it would be uh, Justice Harlan, uh, you know, the great dissenter, I remember learning about 
that uh, the great descent he wrote in Plessy versus Ferguson in, in, in college and really just being inspired by that, you know, he, he was a Southerner and I believe a, uh, in a family of slave owners, but he dissented against, with, against every eight to one against everyone in Plessy versus Ferguson, upholding the equality of all people that all uh, people are equal before the law. And, and it really, it's so that, you know, our constitution is colorblind and that, that to me is so inspirational, but he must have felt felt so much pressure to go the other way as a Southerner, as a family, uh, uh, from a family of former slave owners, that I, I just wonder what went through his mind. Because it could have been so easy to just to go along with the other eight and and, and join the the majority in that uh, case. Uh, and I, I just I just can imagine the pressure he was under, and he, he stuck and and he stuck to the right, right side of the law, right side of, of, of history and the right side of, of, um, you know, morality. Um, and to me, it was just a great, um, model of judicial courage. And I'd just love to talk to him about that experience, uh, cause you know, we confront some very tough, tough issues and, and, uh, you can't get much higher than that. And he, um, you know, I admire what he did there. Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thanks, John Carlo. I really enjoyed this talk. It's been wonderful. Zach, are you ready for your favorite part of the show and mine? Probably more mine than yours, but are you ready? No, but let's do it anyway, GC. <laughs> it's trivia. And this week, I have a collection of some of the funniest fun facts about the court. Excellent. I could use a little laughter. All right, good. So hit me with your questions. Perfect. Question number one is all about laughter. A law professor, J.D. Wexler, analyzed court transcripts to determine which justice was the funniest. He did this by counting how often the notation laughter appeared in the transcript after a justice spoke. Who was the funniest of them all? I'm going to guess Justice Scalia uh, because Justice Scalia, he had a uh, a sharp wit that could uh, bite sometimes, uh, but I imagine he drew drew laughter at a few oral arguments. Your guess is right and very much a safe one. Justice Scalia was far and away the funniest justice, according to the data that Professor Wexler used, which began October 2004, which was in the first time this was made available. He found that Justice Scalia was the funniest justice at 77 laughing episodes. On average, Justice Scalia was good for just over one laugh, 1.027 to be precise, per oral argument. Justice Breyer was second, producing 45 laughs. Well, I have to tell you, GC, I, I remember watching a congressional hearing where Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer were testifying together, and they really were a, a, a good pair in terms of making information about the court accessible and interesting, and they even got a few laughs out <laughs> of the uh, senators on the panel. All right, number two, Zach. There is a long-running debate about whether tomatoes are fruits or vegetables. Fruit. It's got to be a fruit. <laughs> those who are excessively technical will call them fruit, but those who are pragmatic will call them vegetables. So you're saying those who are excessively technical and correct call them a fruit, <laughs> right? Well, I'm going to stay out of this one, but the Supreme Court has already decided the question. Where did the Supreme Court come out? Well, 
I don't know, but if it's anything other than fruit, I would have to respectfully submit uh, they're incorrect. <laughs> well, you you can file your dissent because the Supreme Court held that they are vegetables, at least for the purposes of the Tariff Act of 1883. In Nix versus Hedden, 1893, the question was whether the Tariff Act, which applied only to imported vegetables, applied to tomatoes. The court held that it did. I wonder what the stare decisis effect of that decision is. Uh, I think it needs to be revisited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three, Zach. When the court gathers to take an official court portrait, news photographers are given two minutes to snap photos of the full court after the official photographer finishes. Justice Thomas is infamous among the news photographers for making it very hard for them to get a good picture. Why is that? Well, I would imagine because he's telling jokes or stories that are uh, making his colleagues laugh. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Uh, photographer Dennis Brack called him our nemesis because you want all nine justices <laughs> looking serious, but Thomas and those sitting next to him are constantly laughing. Excellent. All right. And last question for the day, Zach. Thomas's predecessor, Thurgood Marshall, was also a problem for photographers, but for a different reason. What was that? I don't know, GC. What was it? He would regularly fall asleep during the photography sessions. Uh, okay. Understandable. Understandable. Well, those were, were good trivia questions today, and uh, I'll have to start listening to the oral arguments and see which justices are getting the most laughs. I'll be very curious to see if, if uh, Professor Wexler updates with uh, new data. I certainly hope he does, because I'd, I'd be very interested to see it. Well, GC, that's all we have for today. So I want to thank everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. And remind everyone, please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. For more information, visit heritage.org.